You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Colson Whitehead is a brilliant African-American writer in New York City, and he has recently retold an old fable, the fable of the frog and the scorpion. The uh, scorpion wants to get across the river and asks the frog for a lift on his back, and the frog said, well, why would I do that? We would get out in the middle of the river and you would sting me. To which the scorpion replied, well, I wouldn't be very smart to do that. If I stung you in the middle of the river, we would both drown. Seemed logical to the frog, and so he allowed the scorpion to climb onto his back, and the two began to move across the river. If you know the story, you know what happens. Sure enough, they get to the middle of the river, and the scorpion stings the frog. And just as they're going under, the frog said, why did you do that? To which, in Whitehead's retelling, the scorpion answers, you do you which is a contemporary expression these days uh, that's being used more and more, but that raises the question, well, who is you? Who am I? Am I more like the frog or more like the scorpion or something altogether different? You and I tend to be fascinated with this question of identity. Who am I? Seems like it should be an easy question to answer, but it's complicated by the second question that always emerges. Who am I supposed to be? Well, God's Word give us, gives us rich insight into this question, and so today we're going to look at how James would invite us to answer uh, this important question. Would you open up your Bible, please, to James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 980. As you're looking at this text, I want to provide a little bit of context even before we read it. Remember, in James 1, James is treating the subject of trials. He has established that God can use trials for our growth. But that growth requires self-awareness, and in order to find this self-awareness, we need to learn to hear. And so hearing is really the, the theme that he moves to next as he comes to this final section. You see it's titled, Hearing and Doing the Word. And there are really three paragraphs well marked in our scriptures. Again, look at the page. You'll see that first section is more about hearing. The final paragraph there, verse 26, is more about doing. But the verses that we're going to read now, 22 through 25, are about the link, the essential link between hearing and doing as we try to discover who we are. Now, if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's Word aloud together. James chapter 1, 22 through 25. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading His holy Word. But be doers of the Word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. 
I understand that in 1839, the very first selfie was taken by a man named Robert Cornelius, who had a wooden box with a treated piece of bronze in the back. And he had enough time to take the lens off and run in front of the camera and stand there for over a minute and then run back and put the lens cap on, a selfie. The thing I like about the selfie is that we all have our selfie faces, right? Nobody takes a selfie with a straight face. We all make a a particular face. So would you just turn to the person next to you and make your selfie face for just a second there? Let's see what these look like. Make that kind of selfie face. Sorry you're missing this on the radio. This February... <laughs> this, this is fun. I want to. <laughs> I didn't see any cameras come out, but next service, I think I'm going to get mine out. <laughs> the President of the United States of America made a video this February. It was released on BuzzFeed, and it showed him looking into a mirror. It's a very playful um, uh, video. He's, 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 he's the the President of the United States of America. We used to say the leader of the free world. And uh, there he is checking himself out in a mirror, making funny faces. Uh, He's trying different expressions. He puts on Joe Biden's aviators. He makes his fingers into a gun. Uh, He pronounces, he's trying, he's like getting ready for a speech. He's practicing the word February, February. It's hard to say in the mirror. And it got me thinking about uh, mirrors. I wonder what faces some of the ancients would have made as they looked into mirrors. I wonder what Socrates or Cleopatra might have looked like. I I wonder if Herod or Pontius Pilate might have made faces in their mirrors. Or or what it would have looked like if we'd have seen Mary or Peter checking themselves out in a mirror or being playful. The ancient world did have mirrors. They weren't quite as bright as ours. They were made by uh, flattening a piece of bronze and then polishing it smooth. For James, the mirror is an analogy for something that reflects not just your face, not just your superficial identity, but the soul itself. He's thinking not of a physical mirror. It's an analogy for something deeper. He refers to it as the Word in verse 22. You may want to keep your Bibles open as we look at this. He says, be doers of the Word. And then we find out he thinks of it like the Word, like a mirror. This word, Word, is the Greek word for logos. That's what he's using. Just a simple word. It's likely that he's remembering those times in the Old Testament when God would break into time and space to speak. The Word of the Lord came to Abram, we read or the word of the Lord came to Samuel, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is the word his readers would have assumed. But but he doesn't just speak of it as the word. He begins to qualify that phrase uh, throughout the text. And in chapter 1, verse 18, the word he refers to is referred to as the word of truth, by which we are given a new birth and spiritual life. In verse 25 of the first chapter, the word is elaborated. He says it's the perfect law. The law of liberty or freedom. Chapter 2, verse 8, the word here is referred to as the royal law. This is likely because these are expressions that James in his community would have used to refer not just to the Old Testament, not even to the New Testament, but to Jesus himself, the living logos. 
Jesus is the true word. Jesus is the one who brings spiritual life. Jesus is the one who is perfect because he fulfills or he completes the law. And it's the law of liberty because Jesus comes and brings freedom into our lives. The word is a royal law because Jesus is the king of the kingdom that he's bringing. And so in all of these ways, James is thinking of the mirror as a person to whom all of the scriptures give witness The old to the new, from the first page to the last, reflect this living word, this living logos, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the creator speaking to all of human history in the flesh. You may remember the movie, some of you, uh, Groundhog Day. There's There's a scene in Groundhog Day in which Bill Murray, who plays an anchor man from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, claims to be a god. Bill Murray is in a coffee shop. He's speaking with a woman named Rita. He's fallen in love with Rita, but she doesn't believe they've ever met before. She's never met him as far as she can remember, but he has met her because what happens here in the movie is he's there to cover Groundhog Day, February 2nd. It goes through the day, and at the end of the day, he wakes up, and it's still February 2nd. And again and again and again, Bill Murray's character has to relive the same day for eternity. And so he knows her because he's been in this scene in the coffee shop again and again and again. He knows everybody in the coffee shop. He knows everything that's about to happen. Here's what he says to Rita. In five seconds, he says, a waiter will drop a tray of dishes. Five, four, three, two, one, crash. She says, this is nuts. That's enough. Do you know me too? He says, I know all about you. You like producing, but you're hoping for more than Channel Pittsburgh. You like boats, but not the ocean. You go to the mountain lake in the summer with your family. There's a long wooden dock and a boathouse with boards missing from the roof and a place you used to crawl underneath to be alone. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and to children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. See, he knows her because... He has lived with her for all of eternity, in essence. So that when God steps into time and space and takes on human flesh and stands before you and me, the truth is, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Because day after day, he's been with us, knowing everything about us. The point then that James is making is, you see you, who you really are, in him. You see you in him. God's word reveals our identity. In the Gospels, this is what Jesus is doing again and again and again. He's standing before people and knowing them as they really are. He keeps trying to unhook them from every sort of false identity. For example, do you remember the guy to which Jesus said, go and sell everything, give to the poor? Who was he? Well, he's been remembered as the, quote, rich, young ruler. And Jesus knows that your money won't last. There's no good in hooking your identity to the corner office because you can't hold on to that uh, either. And your youth, they say, they tell me, is a fleeting thing. And so he's calling this man away from these things, which are not bad things, but, but as an identity, they will, they will, they're, they're inherently unstable. He asks a key question to him. He says, why do you call me good? You see, me good. He's trying to attract his identity to something that is worthy 
rooted in me. I remember the woman who has a hemorrhage. She's bleeding for 12 years. And uh, her illness had become her identity, which is not an uncommon thing. And she manages to reach out and to touch the hem of Jesus' robe in a, a, a busy crowd. Jesus notices some power has left his body, and he turns around and he asks immediately the critical question, Who? He says, Who? Who touched me? Because he wants to identify her. He wants her to look into his face and see him say to her, Daughter which is his next word, daughter. That's the identity he gives her. Well, our wealth, our youth, our jobs, our diseases can all become identities. Even our religion can become an identity. I remember the time that he was in a Pharisee's house named Simon, and Simon saw a woman touch Jesus with great emotion. And Simon said, well, if he knew what sort of woman she was, then he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus made it clear that the problem wasn't just that Simon couldn't see her for who she was. The problem was that Simon couldn't see himself really truly for who he was. He has forgiven this daughter. And he has forgiven Simon as well. We know ourselves in his grace, not in our religion. You see you in him. God's word reveals, reflects our true identity. This video that uh, President Obama uh, made uh, concludes with that expression, you do you. He, he's, uh, he, what happens is he's in his office at the end of this and he's, um, he's pretending to sink a great three-pointer in the final second of a game. You know, there's no ball. He's just sitting there and an aide happens to break in. It's an embarrassing moment. The aide says, Mr. President. And uh, President Obama says, can I live? And the aide says, you do you. And I think James might appreciate the phrase. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. Because James is saying, it's not just hearing the word, it's doing the word. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they're like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. Do something with what you see in my word. It's like the mirror analogy. It's, it's, it's like you know, waking up in the morning in all of your glory with bedhead, puffy eyes, mouth guard, you know, all this. And you look in the mirror and you go, oh, my good Lord. And uh, there it is. That's the truth of you in that moment. And then he says, well, what if you just walked away and went off to work like that? No, when you see something, you've got to do something, you see. That's, that's the analogy. You have an opportunity to, 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 by doing something, combing your hair, washing your face, shaving, whatever, you could become a better you. And so when you hear the truth of who you are in God's word, in God's grace, then don't just bask in the moment. Go out and do something with that. Colson Whitehead, this novelist I mentioned to you, wrote an article for the New York Times recently about the phrase, you do you. And his concern is that and interpreted one way, it becomes kind of a, an unquestionable excuse, kind of a black hole that absorbs all criticism. Like the phrases, it is what it is, or boys will be boys, or haters gonna hate. <laughs> I hear you've heard that, those phrases, right? And we just say, well, that's just who I am. I'm a scorpion, and i got to do me. And Whitehead said, that's very dangerous thinking. And I think James would agree. And that's why he doesn't say, first, do you. He actually says, do the word. We're called to be doers of the word. 
Now, uh, you see that in verse 22. I want to share with you two implications of that. Two implications for us if we're trying to do the word. The first is deception, and the other is reflection. And first I would say, when you do the word, you become a better you. You see you in him. James talks about deception in verse 22. Those who are merely hearers deceive themselves, he says. I thought this was an interesting word as I was reading, because the Greek word for deceive there has the word logos, or word in it, mashed up with the Greek preposition for alongside, or para, like parallel skis. This is a word alongside. To deceive yourself is to lay another word alongside God's word in your life. An alternative word from which you draw an identity. Another word in which you seek to see who you might be. An unstable word. The fact is, though, we're complicated. And I appreciate the brain science that's going on right now. It tells us there's a lot that goes on in our lives that we don't completely understand. Let me give you two illustrations of this. Race and romance. First, race. If you haven't ever done this, it might be worth taking some time to go to the website called Implicit Project. The Implicit Project is a project that's been run for, I don't know, how, over a decade out of uh, University of Washington, two other universities. And what they, what they do is they ask people, do you think you're a racist? And everyone says no. And then you take their inventory and you, they flash images on the screen. And afterward, they don't tell you you're a racist, but what they will tell you is that you have some implicit biases that operate below your conscious awareness. They affect the preferences they make in the things that you do. This is interesting in light of what's going on in Baltimore and even in Seattle. People who say, oh, I, I don't see myself as a prejudiced person, actually harbor prejudices. We have to actively do something to overcome those prejudices. Another example, a romance, interesting piece, just last Sunday in the New York Times, written by a sophomore at Columbia University, a college student. She's very insightful. She tells the story of um, a weekend when she was in college, in which she went to be with a high school friend of hers with, in whom she'd always been interested, but they've never had a romance, and they've never had the courage to define their relationship or ask, what are we all about? And yet, when she gets back from this weekend, she's not proud of what she does. She covers herself in her sheets so that her roommates won't hear her sob into her pillow. What surprises her is not just the pain of all that she lost in relationship to him, but what surprises her is that she keeps doing it. They keep having these encounters without ever deciding what the relationship should mean to them. And she says, she tries to explain this to her father, things are different, Dad. We don't talk about dating now because um, I'm an empowered woman. And this kind of empowers me just to kind of do what I want to do. But she's more honest with her readers than she is with her father. Listen to what she writes. She says, I'm told my generation will be remembered for our callous commitments and rudimentary romances. We hook up, we sext, we swipe right. In other words, just delete. All the while, we avoid labels and try to bury our emotions. We aren't supposed to want anything serious, but a void is created. We keep our options open. We say we're in control, but are we? I've brooded over the same person for the last four years. Can I honestly call myself empowered if I'm unable to share my feelings with him? Could my options be more closed? Could I be less in control? 
There's a part of her life she has not acknowledged and yet it's driving her actions. This is what James is talking about when he says we can be deceived about who we really are and what's really operating in our lives. And so to, to us, he says, look into the, the grace of Jesus Christ in God's word. Allow it to confront you and challenge you. You see, Jesus knows who you are. He can separate the racist from the you. He can separate the destructive relationships from the you. He knows the real you, and he's calling you to act out of a better you. When you do the word, you become a better you. You see you in him and act. This is hearing and doing cycle, just like the mirror. You know, I consult with my mirror morning and evening. And we need to consult with God's word morning and evening because life will mess us up. And we need to keep returning to God's grace to be refreshed and renewed and recommissioned. Sometimes we say to God, or I say to God, God, I want you to tell me what to do here. I want you to tell me, you know, left or right, uh, Austin or New York, this job or that job, this relationship or that relationship. And God says, fine, I can tell you. But you know what? I want you to do something with what I've already told you. God has told us an awful lot in his word. We need to read it and act on it. And then he'll tell us more. The second uh, implication for doing the word has to do with reflection. When you do the word, you are a mirror to the world. I believe the world sees him in you. Reflection. Look at verse 27. Here James writes that religion is pure and undefiled. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Now, that's interesting. Why just isolate orphans and widows? Uh, Because if you read the Old Testament, you realize God himself cares for the orphan and widows. He wants to do something about the social ills in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, the person who was supposed to be the protector of, of, of women and children were men. It was a patriarchal society, and men were the only ones who were allowed to own property. And so uh, you had to be a father in order to protect an orphan uh, or a husband to protect uh, a a woman in this way. And so God's not saying, I'm male, when he reveals himself as father. He says, I'm that kind of a protector. I care for the widow and the orphan. That's who I am. You might think of that as a father because that's your cultural context if you live in, in the ancient world. But... So what he's really saying is, I want to call into existence a group of people who reflect my values, who, who, who do what I would do if I were flesh and blood in their situation. So uh, when we put the word into action, we reflect God's presence. And James is doing what all the New Testament writers do. He's not giving advice to individuals for their personal piety. He is trying to replicate the ministry of Jesus in a community of believers who follow Jesus. That's what he's doing. This letter is meant to call into existence a community that reflects Jesus in their neighborhood. Today, it's not just you and I in church who ask questions about identity. We all ask questions about identity. One thing you can count on in your neighbor is that their identity is under attack. I like what Nadia Bowles-Weber says. She says, identity is always God's first move. Before we do anything wrong, before we can do anything right, God has named and claimed us as God's own. But almost immediately, other things try to tell us who we are and to whom we belong. Capitalism, the weight, I like this phrase, the weight loss industrial complex. Uh, Our parents, kids at school, they all have a go at telling us who we are. But only God can do that. 
Everything else is temptation. She says, maybe demons are defined as anything other than God that tries to tell us who we are. And maybe just moments after Jesus' baptism, when the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, he does so because he knows that Jesus is vulnerable to temptation precisely to the degree that he is insecure about his identity and mistrusts his relationship with God. Man, that's true for me, and that is true for our neighbors. And James knows that when you and I do the word, we reflect the one who wants to claim our neighbors in his love and help them know who they are as his beloved children just like us. We can be a community who stands before our neighbors. Your small group can stand before your neighbors and be like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day and say, I know one who knows all about you and who loves you deeply. See you in his word, and then let the world see him in you. You do you. Who is you? Let me answer that question finally by one last question. Do you think that Jesus ever made faces in a mirror? Just think about that for a second. It's kind of an interesting question. You think he ever... Pulled out a mirror. Maybe Mary and Joseph weren't looking there. And he looked in it and he started to make faces. You know, he, he made the smile face or the grimace or the pucker. You know, that's one. Say prunes. Uh, he frowned. My favorite, the surprise face. You know, you can see the Savior of the universe doing this. If he did that, realize that when he took on flesh, it was the first time he could see a face. He existed for all eternity. The eternal Son of God. But if he'd ever looked in eternity past into a mirror, he would have seen nothing, I guess. It was only when he became born as a baby, son of Mary, that he had a face that a mirror would reflect. And so as he makes these expressions in a mirror, he's really making your expressions and mine. That grimace is your grimace. That surprise is your surprise. That smile is your smile. Because the face is your face. After all, this is why God took on flesh. So he sees you because he became like you. He became what we are so that we could become what he is. That we could look to heaven and hear through God's word a voice saying, My beloved, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Gracious God, forgive us and help us to throw off all of our deceptions. You have called us again through your servant James to pay attention to your word. It gives us the word of life. This ancient book will introduce us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who knows all about us and who loves us. We give ourselves to you this day through faith. We give you and you alone the authority to name and claim us. Thank you for that freedom. And we pray, Lord, that this week your Holy Spirit will send us out individually and corporately in our small groups and missional communities to a world that needs to know they, like us, are deeply loved. We pray it in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.